Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and Welcome the Economist. To the I'm Michelle Flieger, the Economist. Of the and I'm Peter Kajoyan, the, the Grower. In 2021, we to tackle Today, the biggest Peter challenges facing small and medium sized growers. We're they one part grower and one part economist, just like your guests. Business. We have two of their experts today to be our guest experts. So I'd like to welcome both Michael Cardenas and Jason Green. Thank you for joining us. And before we begin, we'd like to just get to know both of you a little bit better. Uh, well, I'll start. Thanks for having us, Michelle and Peter. And a little bit about me. I've worked with um, Hilux and the product line is Grow Film for the last four years. Um, we are uh, very much into the vertical uh, grow, grow systems and things like that. Uh, being in this business, it's been awesome because we get to see a lot of different farms and how a lot of different people are going to be growing indoors at scale. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of what we've been doing the last four years, traveling around, going to different grow farms and uh, seeing how we can serve their lighting needs. Yes, I would uh, say the same thing. I've worked with GrowFilm since the beginning. Hilux is the parent company, and we have two brands, LumaFilm and GrowFilm. And we go into um, different settings from greenhouses, controlled environment agriculture, uh, home grows, etc. And we have a very unique uh, capability because of our light. Um, we get to see lots and lots of different fantastic innovation. Um, and it's been quite the joy and the experience to get to know all these different cultivators from many, many different crops. So I'm guessing this year you might have had to take a step back and visited a few less farms. Is that are you still able to communicate well with the growers? Do you really miss that? How does actually standing in the farm uh, help you improve the grow film product? Oh, um tremendously and yes you are correct the pandemic has really um, made it difficult to travel anywhere to get out to the farms um, it's been very difficult for the greenhouses and the farmers themselves so we really miss the opportunity of literally getting our hands in the dirt with the growers there's nothing that can replace being on site being on a video chat and things like that are great but when you're right there and you're working with the cultivators and you're solving problems real time and applying new techniques and technologies, that's where the magic really happens. Yeah, if you can commercially farm, that's not something you can do from uh, having Wi-Fi at your house. So so obviously, if you're providing a tool uh, for you know farmers to use, it's it's better to see everything up front and that's easier to solve some you know solutions like that being on the scene. And uh, Michael, you mentioned two products that that um, so far in the conversation. Would you describe the two of them a little in a little more detail? Either one of you, please. Sure. Um, Lumafilm is kind of where our light started. It's an architectural product. It's a flexible emitter um, that uh, it's a flexible emitter that um, is used for backlighting in architecture. So a lot of like, if you look at the Tiffany's jewelry stores and things like that, a lot of that is Lumafilm on the backside, lighting up their displays. Grow film stemmed from Lumafilm. We started out as a flexible emitter, found out that that's, you know, while it grows very well, it's not very useful in a commercial setting. So we moved to a very thin, rigid emitter um, where we speckle LEDs throughout the emitter to give us 
you know, more uniformity, more balance than most other lights out there. And um, you know, I'll let Jason tell the story of how Grow Film stemmed from Lumafilm because it's kind of a good story and he tells it really well. Uh, but we make a very similar product. Uh, obviously, the Grow Films used for horticultural commercial lighting. Yes. Um, uh, so Lumafilm been around many places. We tell people all the time. You've probably seen it. They just don't know it. Um, it's in um, many very um, recognizable places and such. And what he said is Tiffany stores use it a lot, especially in the ceiling. If you look at a Tiffany store in the ceiling, um, it looks like a Tiffany lamp. And um, the Lumafilm has backlights all the Tiffany ceiling in every Tiffany store in the country. And an uh, electrician happened to be installing this in a Tiffany store in Denver. And it was with our what are, we call our white lightning product. And um, he went back at the end of the day to his friend who is a cultivator, a legal grower of cannabis in Colorado and said, you're never going to believe this product that I hung up today at this store. I worked with it for eight hours and it didn't get hot. I could touch it. And the grower said, are you kidding me? I got to know about that. And that's kind of where uh, Grow Film came to fruition. The cannabis growers found it in a um, different application. So we started working with um, a professor at the University of Minnesota who is um, very well known. He is now um, at the University of Maryland. And we showed him the product and he is a, a very well-known horticulturist. And he said, where did you get this? And we said, well, we make it. He goes, where? We said, right here. He goes, are you kidding me? I've been searching the world over and you're in my backyard. Can you change the colors of these? We go, we can do whatever you would like. And he goes, I want to help and give you some information on how to put these together. And that's how Grow Film came out of Lumafilm. So um, kind of the product of necessity. And then over the last... For years, Michael and I have been working hand in hand with the growers and we've switched from the flexible emitter to a more of a rigid type of a blade, which now we can go into um, a any kind of an operation and basically tell them what is your need, uh, how can we support you? And they say if it's a big nursery, then maybe we'll go in there or a big greenhouse, we'll do all of their nursery and we'll say how dense do you want to make your light? Because we can literally um, <clears throat> put the light four inches from the canopy and uh, it won't affect it at all. And it'll be uniform across the board. And uh, it's been very effective. That sounds really cool. Thank you, gentlemen. Jason, when you mentioned the University of Minnesota, I th I'm pretty sure you're describing a good friend of mine, Dr. John Irwin. Yes, sir. That's exactly who I am speaking about. You got it. John is a close colleague of mine, and uh, I just contacted him to uh, co-write an article with me in a grower magazine in uh, 2021. So it is a small world, gentlemen, isn't it? Yes, it for sure That's is. Awesome. He, he has taught us everything we needed to know to be able to walk into um, a greenhouse, a nursery, a uh, controlled environment egg, and... Um, Yes, uh, uh, just absolutely cannot sing his praises enough. He, um, I mean, I come from sports medicine. That's my original background, but I was a nutrition major as well. And um, I, I've been patching up rehab with bodies for years. And I used to go down to a farm 
in Southern Minnesota. And that's how I got into the agriculture stuff. And then when I had an opportunity to work with this population and get to meet Professor Irwin, it just jived with me right away. And I, he said, guys, you have a product where we can direct so much light energy into that crop. He said, I can teach you how to use that tremendously. And he essentially has. I can't wait. Okay, one quick story uh, to finish up the introduction. You mentioned that uh, Dr. Irwin is now the department head at the University of Maryland. Um, Michelle did her undergraduate work at Maryland, and after I completed my graduate work, I took a position on the faculty there at the University of Maryland. So when I talked to John a couple of weeks ago to congratulate him on his move, I said, gee, a couple of years and you would have been my boss. <laughs> that is fantastic. Wow, what a small world. Yes. So, uh, Michael, I think you, you mentioned the, the first, one of the first, uh, um, you, you made reference to cultivators. And whenever I hear the word cultivator, you know, that, that triggers that we're talking about the cannabis industry because in traditional horticulture, we normally refer to ourselves as, as growers. So as we dig into some of the uh, details now, how much of your business and attention, guys, is uh, directed at the cannabis industry versus how much is uh, greenhouse industry? Boy, that's a tough question to answer. Um, I would say that, geez, Jason, I, I, I would think we're almost getting closer to 50-50, where before it was maybe more food. Um, related. And I think a lot of that has to do with Peter is cannabis is making a major shift into LED. Um, you're having a lot of um, states like the state of Illinois, the state of California, where I believe in 2001, 2020, or 2021, 2022, if you're going to be a commercial grow, you have to be um, LED using LED or energy efficient lights. And cannabis is still stuck in some some folks are in the old ways of using high pressure sodiums and metal halides. And um, and so I think that's why that's the interest is growing in LED and the cannabis more now than it has in the past. Um, food has always been a major target to our for us. I mean, the the, the population and, and the food problems that we're going to be facing, you know, indoor farming, greenhouse farming, really all of it contribute, but indoor farming is kind of the new thing that's going to hopefully help us get us over the edge. Um, so I, I say we're very food focused, but um, we're getting a lot of interest with cannabis right now as well. I don't know. Would you agree, Jason? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, as I've said before, sometimes our light is crop agnostic. We really don't care what you're going to grow. We're going to show you how to apply the light technology as, effect, as effectively and efficiently as you can. Um, but you know, it is, um, it has gone uh, more, especially with California, uh, you know, fifth largest economy on any given day in the world. They have mandated that all horticulture, anything, whether you're in a greenhouse, a controlled environment ag, you're growing vegetables, you're growing cannabis, anything where you're going to put a light on it, it must be LED. And they've got very rigid um, uh, structures of all the things from CO2 production uh, humidity control, et cetera. And that's where we're starting to see this kind of level off across the board. At the end of the day, um, we do have a strong, strong place with the growers. And it's it's kind of funny when we go to different shows that so we'll go to, say, Cultivate. Um, 
and uh, over in Ohio. And there it's all growers and such and horticulture as opposed to what's going on, uh, the MJ Biz show, which is the cannabis focused one. And when we go to the cannabis show, we say, well, this is what the growers do. And they all pop up, their ears perk up and they go, what do those guys do? And well, this is kind of some of the techniques they've used. And when we go to the the grower shows, they'll say, well, what do the cannabis guys do? <laughs> so it's kind of funny because both understand that there's difference. Um, a great person that you would know, um, uh, Peter, I'm sure, the late uh, Bob Jones Sr. from the Chef's Garden. Yes. Um, you know, was a great, great uh, mentor of mine. I worked with them very closely. Professor Irwin and I have been visited the farm several times. Um, and he said, you know what, Jason, I'm never, ever going to grow hemp and I'll never grow cannabis or anything. He goes, but those guys were the best thing to happen to horticulture and agriculture because they took the old garden. They said, we don't care anymore. Do what we need to do. And then the cannabis guys will go, I want to go and learn from Bob Jones senior because he's figured this out over the last 80 years. And if I can learn from him, I know I can be better in my own business practice. Jason, that's a great point to bring up. You know, when you mentioned that the light is agnostic, uh, crop agnostic, um, I have a similar saying that I use frequently, and that is whether I'm conversing with cannabis industry or woody ornamentals or flowers and, and bedding plants, uh, my, my version of what you said is, a plant is a plant is a plant. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's so many times, so many cannabis growers feel that there's something unique about the marijuana plant that no one else can understand. And uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, sitting on a technical advisory board for a medical group up in the state of Maine. And I am so impressed with their head grower and, uh, and their manager, I would put them up against any commercial greenhouse grower that I've had uh, uh, the pleasure of working with over the years. But as is always true, whether it's the greenhouse or a cannabis operation, you have good growers and you have poor growers. Absolutely. So uh, one thing, uh, there are two questions that I'd like to touch on during the, the remaining time we have together in addition to points that either of you may want to bring to the conversation. So I'm going to throw out the two questions and we'll meander around and, and get to them as we do. One is, I'd like you guys to address a little bit about the difference between greenhouse supplemental LED lighting and sole source indoor vertical farm slash cannabis LED lighting. And then the second point I'd like to touch on is uh, your takes uh, your recommendations on adjustable spectrum technology versus broad spectrum white LED. So why don't either one of you take us where you'd like to go? Well, I'll start with the tunable spectrum. Um, that is a you know something that we're interested in. Um, we had uh, the pleasure of being on a panel, and uh, of course, his name escapes me. Jason, do you remember the scientist's name? Yeah, um, Morales. Yeah, and uh, he's From been studying... Morgan Yes, uh, he's been studying light and plants for forever. And, um, and we agree with this philosophy as well, you know, especially when you're looking at growing lettuce indoors or something that, you know, you have a very thin margin on in that grocery store. It's really about how, you know, 
to make the most efficient uh, product you can that can be sold in that store. And um, we agree with what he says. He says, at this point in time, we just don't know enough about tunable spectrums where it's going to be worth the cost of putting it at scale. So we have a lot of, um, we know a lot of growers out there that are using it as a R&D tool, which it would be a great R&D tool. Um, we do see it as something that is going to be viable in the future when costs are going to be able, upfront costs are going to be able to level off on that particular product, along with the science community, you know, finding the benefits of the different colors during the different stages of, of the growth. Because uh, I just don't think there's ever been this kind of control on lighting before. So there's just a lot to learn. Um, so we don't see it as a viable, scalable um, especially in the greens market at this point in time. Um, but obviously, I mean, it is the future. Michael, that's nice that you met. It's refreshing that you bring that point out. I've had the pleasure of being involved with two LED startups over the past dozen years or so. And both of them, the, the principals uh, wanted to push forward, you know, full speed ahead, adjustable spectrum, um, and I, as the plant scientist in, in each of those projects, kept saying, okay, yeah, that's cool. It's really sexy to have all that kind of control, but we don't understand the plant physiology enough today to be able to take advantage of that. So it's refreshing to hear you confirm that and that we agree that someday we will unlock some of these mysteries and be able to take advantage of that kind of control. Well, I'll tell you what, Peter, it's refreshing to hear you confirm that because <laughs> it is it is definitely a topic, you know, and and there are growers out there um, like I, I heard the guy from 80 Acres speak and uh, on some of their crops, they have a difference of opinion that it is worth that expense at this point in time. Um, so anytime we can talk to a grower like yourself or, you know, somebody in the know and, and you helping us confirm that, that that that's good for us to hear as well. Do you guys have a ballpark of the difference in price? Just because I have no idea and I'm supposed to ask money questions. Difference in price between um, a tunable spectrum and a broad spectrum? Correct. Oh, uh, gosh, I'd have to look at it, but I would bet that your tunable spectrums, depending, you know, this is the difficult piece that Peter can especially um, uh, attest to is that there's a very wide uh range of quality in your led product depending on where it's coming from and how it was built so um you're probably looking at about a 20 percent increase or more with the tunable piece coming in there um depending on again if it's an apples and apples but you could probably find probably have something made for you off of a website from another location that would be very cheap but it's not going to be very effective as opposed to something that was made um, you know, in a in a different location where it was more research and everything put into that. Yeah, I haven't looked in a while, but some of the the bigger bigger lighting companies, I mean, household name companies, they specifically call their tar or their tunable spectrum an R and D light. I mean, they I mean they they label it that, knowing that this is not scalable at this cost. And and you guys have mentioned some of our research programs around the country. 
Michigan State University has a very robust LED program that I'm sure you guys are aware of, if not participating in. And then one of uh, John Irwin's PhDs, uh, Neil Matson, has been at Cornell, and he's lighting the world on fire in this arena. So, yes, they're the ones who are doing the, um, for instance, I, I believe coming out of Roberto Lopez's lab at Michigan State, we we're now talking about on a red leaf lettuce during the final days of the crop cycle to raise the level of blue light to increase pigmentation. So, yeah, you guys are probably involved in some of that stuff. Um, are there other other um, benefits than raising pigmentation that you guys are seeing in the future for tunable spectrum? You know, I've had some discussions with some different people and actually um, looking at this, they were playing with some different things, I know, um, and um, playing around with some different uh, wavelengths and getting different brick counts and such. So uh, the, I think I'm trying to remember um, his name, but there was a, it was at, it was at uh, Indoor AgCon and I will have to reach up, but he was speaking up there and said that now with the CEA and with the tunable spectrums on different LED technologies and such that they're thinking that they can start to create environments where um, they can actually dial back in time. And he was saying that they created the environment that essentially would mimic what they felt it would have been like, you know, 800 years ago on the banks of the River Nile in Egypt. And they estimated what kind of the nutrient content would be, the lighting, et cetera, and they ran it. And they said the phytonutrient levels in the broccoli that they grew was just out of sight. So I think that once they get enough um, information on this, that they'll know how to manipulate this more into the food. But again, I'm, I'm with you, Peter. John Irwin said one time, I don't care what the light is, you put it in the corner and you put the plant on the other side of the room and that plant will figure out how to utilize what light wavelength it wants to utilize. So going back to your plant physiology statement, you know, it's it's kind of like a needle in a haystack, I think. Well, as, as you guys and, and others push the technology of the tunable spectrum, um, from the plant science perspective in the projects I've been involved with, my advice, my guidance has been as follows. And I want to see how you guys uh, uh, agree or disagree with this. Um, as our technology improves and our LED light fixture improves, I think step number one, objective number one is, can we recreate sunlight? Can we adjust the spectrum through the course of the day along with the intensity? And then once we achieve that, once we reach that objective of recreating sunlight, then how, how can we improve on it? How, and, and Jason, to what you're saying in the Nile River and, and historically over the, the planet, it's all really cool stuff. I'm sure you guys enjoy waking up every day and working on this aspect of agriculture. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, like, as you said, you know, um, Dr. Lopez, what he's doing over there at Michigan State, I mean, is just off the charts. I mean, finding these little pieces and it's it's literally like unlocking a puzzle every single day. Um, and I agree. Uh, I, you know, everybody says, How, can you can you mimic sunlight? That's what everybody goes after the first place, right? Let's go to the number one, the best source is the sun. 
And once we can figure that out, then, um, you know, then you can, you can start to manipulate different places. And I agree with you. I actually had a conversation with Bob Jones senior on this exact topic. I said, Bob, how do we really know? How do we really know, you know, the intensities, the, some of the wavelengths, things like that, as opposed to you being here in Huron, Ohio, and me being in, um, you know, Blooming Prairie, Minnesota. And I said, unless we're sitting right on the same spot on the equator and we're doing the same trials every day. I mean, that's that when you think about the enormity of unlocking that, it's just it's it's amazing. And but it's happening. You know, as you said, you, you're talking, you're you're on these boards with these professors and these people real time that are unlocking these pieces every single day. And now now take it to the big innovators in the world, Elon Musk. Right. So he's going to want to take this to Mars. How are we going to do that? How are we going to unlock that? Very interesting. I was involved with a project at MIT a few years ago that took us down to NASA for a two-day workshop. And what I came away with, first, my job is still on the ground two years later, interacting with that group over a two-day period. But they said to us that before astronauts land on Mars, the food has to be there ready to harvest, meaning we can't afford to ship and send enough food for them in the space capsule. So that's going to require the Elon Musks of the world to create the robotics so that we can get the lights and the robots up there before man arrives and the lettuce is going to be ready to harvest. How cool is that? That is amazing. Well, and I think through this conversation, we've really, when we started talk, when I asked the question about the cost differential, you know, we had been talking about a low profit margin crop, like most of agriculture and the challenges that producers face. But, you know, talking about a light spectrum that is adjustable so that you can get that bright red at the end, you're now talking about a differentiated product, which I could see how as that cost comes down on the lighting end will really be a huge benefit for the grower. The same thing with being able to influence the bricks or influence the um, nutritional value. These are all really differentiated and, and something that indoor agriculture can offer that that is new and something that we don't see as much in conventional outdoor ag. Absolutely. Um... We actually participated in a project with Professor Irwin when he was here at the University of Minnesota, and it was called a Challenge Grant, and it was with the Electrical Engineering Department, um, Professor Ned Mohan, Professor John Irwin, a few others, and and a few postgraduate PhDs, and they figured out how to use um, our Patriot Spectrum, which when we built that, Professor Irwin said, oh, it will take out any inefficiency, so we took out a lot of the white light. and. Um, and, and they were able to use one photo cell um, and then run it with a battery pack and optimize all of the LEDs to be able to grow 24 heads of lettuce on a two foot by four foot countertop space with uh, one solar panel. So essentially, um, they wanted to be able to go into um, federally identified food deserts in the United States and be able to give this to underserved populations so they could start to grow their own food. And have this. And then I actually had on one of my trips when I was going out to the farms a lot, a my Uber driver was a Nigerian gentleman. And he asked me where I was going, what I did. I go, well, I, I sell this light technology. And he says, oh, that sounds amazing. And 
how could you do it? I told him the story about the battery and the, and the photo cell. And he said, oh, my goodness, we need that in my village. And I said, really? He said, yes, everyone in Nigeria has two phones because we do everything with the phones. And all of our banking, everything happens on the phone. And if the power goes out, you have to have your backup phone. And they go, the power goes out, it could be out for a week. If I had that in my village, I could use that light to still grow my vegetables inside and then the stored power to light my dwelling at night. Oh, I love hearing that. That's pretty, pretty amazing stuff that, uh, that is when you talk about the economics, Michelle, um, the economics are so strong that we cannot afford not to look at this. Um, I can't remember who the gentleman was, but it was somebody like you, Peter, um, a, a person, researcher, all involved in the thing. And he said he was on um, on a national radio show and he said, with everything that's coming on, not to say the disruption in the food supply chain because of COVID-19 globally, but with everything going on with changing and more unpredictable weather patterns, um, you know, population growth, et cetera, et cetera. If everybody hit the gas full bore at the same time, we still would be racing to the finish line to be able to feed everybody. Yes, good point. And gentlemen, you can see how much I enjoy working with Michelle and experiencing her economic perspective on converse, in conversations like today's. It's really nice to be brought back to reality every now and then with her questions about, well, what does it cost and is it going to be efficient and profitable? Right. One, one thing that I will say that's very cool in this industry, and you'll look at a lot of these bigger farms like, you know, the Aero Farms and Bowery and stuff, and, and their goal is to make this affordable for everybody. And, I, and that's a big thing that you hear them repeating. It's not you know, that they want to have ex more expensive food somewhere else so people that are more wealthy can buy it. The goal is to get that the same price that it is in the store right now so everybody can benefit from it. And uh, to me, that, that, that's pretty huge, um, you know, versus, you know, it, it's, it's a larger goal than trying to make a profit. Well, hearing that story about Nigeria and the solar panel and that's that small, you know, the two foot by two foot, I have a slide that I show in many of my presentations of my walk-in pantry that's off my kitchen. And it's full of canned goods and hard goods, as you can imagine. And, and the point I make in the slide is we're almost there with the technology so that you empty all those canned goods out and that pantry now becomes your um kitchen abutting uh, veg fresh, fresh vegetable production chamber. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, there's, uh, you're seeing that kind of a concept before COVID, uh, and I'll have to look it up, but there was a, there's a company in France that actually puts these into grocery stores. And you walk into the grocery store and you pick whatever veggie you want to grow and they open up the door and they pull the rack out and they trim it right off for you. And that's really been a discussion more recently as we are starting to rethink commercial real estate. If we're not going to have everybody back in offices, especially in cities, what are we going to do with this extra real estate? And can some of it be growing vegetables or fruits or food in our cities, either for the businesses that work there or just for the people that live in that area? For sure. I mean, COVID did shine a spotlight on our food supply. 
Um, and I, you know, a lot of the people that we're working with, you know, are waiting, looking for funding, that kind of thing to, to, to sprout their farms. And, and we're on the back end of it. And we're seeing a lot of movement now with investment where investors are starting to throw money into this area because people don't want their food to travel anymore. They don't want their food handled as much. And, you know, COVID did shine a spotlight on that. And you're, you're right with the commercial buildings, you know, who knows if downtown commercial offices, things like that are ever going to be the same. Um, Google already said their people never have to come back to the office. They, they, they're not going to need an office anymore. And, um, you know, what better use if, if you can't, you know, f- fill that up with profitable businesses or small businesses and such, you know, what better use to make indoor grow farms that are going to feed that city? That's very well said. And guys, that's the, the COVID when, when back in March, uh, April, uh, March and April, we were um, wondering what this was going to do to our food supply. That, that's what brought Michelle and me together to uh, create this podcast. And the, the main goal that we had at the beginning and maintain today is how are we going to help the local farmers, the family farms um, to navigate the disruption and, you know, we didn't predict six months ago, but we're hearing more and more, as you guys probably are hearing, that the horticulture industry had a really good season for a number of reasons we don't have time to get into today. But it's refreshing to, to see that even in the pandemic, our, our small farmers, well, all farmers, have been able to um, shift gear a bit. And as one of you said a moment ago, we're still not, we're nowhere near being able to feed the world with population increasing. But Michelle and I are finding it, again, refreshing and encouraging that our small growers are reporting that they had good seasons. Yes, we're hearing the same thing um, from people here, especially locally with some of the um, crop shares and such that they had just a, a, a uh, incredible season and you know up here in minnesota where i mean you guys are in massachusetts same thing but boy once the uh snow melted and everybody was stuck inside as soon as they could get out all of the um all of the nurseries and garden centers and greenhouses were just packed and as people were going after that so i agree it's very refreshing and then people wanted that locally sourced vegetables um and it was very good to see the local farmers and doing very well with their um, business, and even though all the challenges that they are facing. Now, one of the things that Michelle is, is addressing is given some of the success that these small growers have achieved over this pandemic, um, a question that we keep asking Michelle is, how much of their increased business is going to be permanent versus just a one-off given the poor year that we had. And Michelle's had some really interesting takes on the, the economics of, of how that's all going to play out. Well, I guess I have a different sort of economics that, that fits into this. So, you know, in the last couple months or weeks, I guess, on the grain side, the price of grains has gone up a lot. Um, and so farmers that were expecting to have a bad year are now flush with cash 
And a lot of them are expecting to make, um, traditionally will and probably will again, make capital improvements or investments in their operations. So I don't know if this is way outside of your scope, but you know, do you think that there will be investments in more lighting um, and some of the products that you sell right now because it was a good season and therefore you have the money to invest? And it sounds like a lot of the products that you offer increase, you know, the the return on investment to the the farms by either increasing quality or quantity. So, I mean, do you see that translating through in your business as well? That people are looking to make upgrades because they had a good season. Yes, I would. I agree. There is more movement um, in the area. Uh, Michelle, you're seeing more investment capital coming in to both greenhouse production, CEA, uh, on food-based. And, um, and so we're one of our areas because of the capabilities of our product, GrowFilm. It's very, very thin. It's very lightweight. It's got great heat dissipation. So uh, uh, often many growers and with their greenhouses will come in and they will set up a separate CEA room where they can put it and either have it in some kind of a soil medium or in a hydroponic. And that's where they'll do all of their nursery work. So they'll have their head house, they'll block it out and then they keep it. And then they might even have a secondary area. And that we kind of call that the seed vault as you were um, speaking a little bit before that not all seeds are the same. Um, they need to keep their genetics, right? Because if anything happens in the greenhouse, they get some kind of an infestation or whatever. They need to push that out right away. Um, and that is coming to fruition where we can help people in both um, the growers and the cultivators. So that is a, a big area that, yes, the capital is starting to come in, both because of um, the uptick in people wanting more localized stuff and the capabilities of the innovation. And secondly, on that, what we are seeing is um, a lot more interest in people coming to us to make in-home grow centers, just like Peter was talking about. Instead of going into your pantry with all of the canned goods, you're going to go and clip that right off of your countertop. Um, so we've had many conversations with people that are designing these kind of um, home-based systems where people can do that all the way up to a lot of um, uh, investment into containers that would be placed either outside of grocery stores our hotels or restaurants. Obviously, uh, that was very, really coming on robustly before COVID, um, especially into the hotel areas. I, mean, I know, I think it was the Ritz Carlton down in uh, Naples, Florida. They were they were providing, gosh, I think the chef quoted twenty to thirty percent of all of their leafy greens was coming out of their um, grow container in their parking lot that they were serving into their hotel guests. That is so cool. Jason and Michael, my last question as we wind down, I'm going to go back, return to the, those original two points I made. Would you guys address briefly some of the differences um, between greenhouse supplemental LED lighting and indoor sole source LED lighting? Uh, assuming that we have listeners who may be only greenhouse uh, focused and then listeners who are only vertical farm focused are the the are, are are they the same fixtures different what are you guys doing we feel they're uh, they're different and 
the main thing is, is you can't block the sun in the greenhouse. Uh, you don't have that concern when you're growing just indoors. So for what you're going to see um, is a lot of your, what used to be high pressure sodiums on the ceiling of greenhouses, you're going to have your higher watt LEDs that are going to be farther away from the plants, but they're a smaller light in general that they're not going to block the sun. They just add supplemental, um, you know, at nighttime or whenever you're looking to add it. For instance, our light, um, where what we do is we cover that grow area. We, we have iterations where we can use blades, so we're not exactly covering it. But um, the idea is, is we want to provide, especially when you're indoors, all, you know, there is no other light source. We want to get the same amount of light to each and every one of those plants. So we cover that grow area on the top end. So when you look at the plants, they all look at they all look the same size. There's not a wave effect where, you know, the plants under the bar look bigger than the plants that are in between the bar. In that aspect, if you put us in a greenhouse, we would literally block the sun. So you wouldn't not you wouldn't have the benefits of the greenhouse at that point in time. So plus the other difference is we like to be very close to that plant because we're trying to maximize space. Well, if you're using a higher watt, even in a higher watt LED and you put it on the ceiling, you do have to have a little bit of heat dissipation. So um, those are our some differences. We fit in more in the propagation area. Um, the, other, the other kind of lighting you could do in a greenhouse would be a side light um, where you could be in between plants and stimulate the entire plant and not just the top 25%. Uh, our particular light would would serve as a dual purpose in that sense that, you know, you could do it, use that for side lighting in a greenhouse. Um, but I think I, I think those are the major differences is, you know, the, the sun is free in the greenhouse and you want to make sure the sun's still hitting all the plants when the sun is out. Well said. Thank you. So, Michael, Jason, personally, I, I want to say thank you to both of you. I, I'm very grateful to have met you electronically and look forward to meeting you in person someday. Uh, I think you helped get our listeners uh, or provide a nice solid foundation uh, on lighting, particularly LED lighting. So I want to say thank you and then hand it over to Michelle so that she can wrap things up. Any final comments from either of you? Oh, I'd just like to say thank you very much for having us on and for both of you um, collaborating together to help bring this um, out and and have these discussions because they're very um, valuable and much needed um, for the whole world right now. So really appreciate having the time and, and uh, look forward to meeting you uh, in person as well, Peter, someday. And uh, really love the connection that we all kind of pulled together here between the Maryland, Minnesota, Massachusetts, um, you know, et cetera. So uh, very, very enjoyable um, session. Yeah, I just want to echo what Jason said. Thanks so much for getting the word out there, because obviously, you know, food growth is very important. And uh, thanks for having us on. It's super fun conversation. Our pleasure. Thank you both, Jason and Michael, for joining us on this edition of The Grower in the Economist. We will be back in two weeks with the next episode. 